I was going through the list of different types of people that have been on the podcast. There have been players and broadcasters, organists, groundskeepers, clubhouse managers, ballpark architects, bat boys, authors, the former president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, We've had an umpire on, a Brooklyn Dodgers season ticket holder from the 1950s. But we've never had a batting practice pitcher on the Lost Ballparks podcast until today. Mike McDermott started working at Dodger Stadium as the visiting team bat boy in the mid-1960s. And within a few years, he transitioned to batting practice pitcher, where he remained for over 30 years. Mac, as he was called around Dodger Stadium, is my guest on this week's Lost Ballparks podcast. This is Harry Carey with Jack Buck and Jerry Gross from the beautiful new Bush Memorial Stadium. And boy, I tell you, this is some sight. The crowd still is coming in. The bleacher area is going to feel almost filled. And the indication is that it's going to be a fine Friday night crowd here at the Polo Grounds. We're underway in the first of a Twinite Doubleheader at Tiger Stadium. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Yep, and I'm Schaefer Brewing Company. Very happy to be pouring it to you from Ebbets Field tonight. And this should be a humdinger. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Al Helfer with Art Gleason bringing you Mutual's Game of the Day from Sunny Shy Park in the city of Philadelphia. Just the start of things. All full of a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shape or two throughout the evening. Mike McDermott, welcome to Lost Ballparks. You began your career with the Dodgers as a teenager working as the visiting team's bat boy Dodger Stadium. This would have been, I think you mentioned, 65 or 66. Who were some of the all-time great players that you got to spend some time with as a result of that incredible job? Um, the first player that comes to mind is Roberto Clemente. And what stands out with him is back then, the players each would give the clubhouse manager maybe 20 bucks a game. So they're there four days, they give me 80 bucks. That's how the clubhouse manager made his money. And then he would pay us what, a little bit of whatever that was. And uh, Roberto would always, as he's leaving after their games are over, he would hand us each five bucks. And he was about the only player that ever did that directly to us. And I can remember it like it was yesterday, five bucks back then. It was probably 1965. It was probably like handing a 20 or a 50 now. He was very generous, very nice guy. Of course, Willie Mays was always real friendly, and he was always jovial and joking around in the clubhouse. I remember Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Kurt Flood, and just a lot of the names pop up, icons of the game. And I was blessed to be able to be in there with them, and I got to wear all of their uniforms because I was a bat boy on the field. So during the games, I would kneel on the on-deck circle, and I'd have an extra bat with me in case they broke the bat. But I'm wearing all the uniforms from all the National League teams. Yeah, who were some of your favorite uniforms to wear? I look back at that era, and those are some of the greatest uniforms right in the mid to the late 1960s. I'd say St. Louis Cardinals was my favorite because of the the colors of red and the Cardinals on the front. I like Pittsburgh Pirates. They had the sleeveless ones. I really like those. I like those colors. Reds had sleeveless too, right? Yeah, the Reds had sleeveless. And then, of course, the Mets were always kind of a fun uniform to wear, uh, being in New York and all that. But I'd say St. Louis and Pittsburgh were my two favorites. Think back to that era uh, in the National League, which is all the teams that would be coming through. What a collection of Hall of Famers from Willie Mays to to Hank Aaron, to Roberto Clemente, to to Johnny Bench. And it probably felt like the greatest job that you could ever imagine. It really was. And, you know, I look back on it now and realize how blessed I was to be because I'm a baseball guy 
through and through to reflect back on those days and all the players that that I was mingling with in the in the clubhouse. And we had a very small clubhouse. The visitor side was tiny, actually. So you're in close quarters with those guys, and they won. They're coming in. They're happy and jovial and everything. And if they lost, it's a little bit quiet for a, at least a few minutes, you know. But being around those superstars of that era was the greatest experience for me. There were times, too, that players would send you out on errands or give you keys to their car? They used to park up on the top deck, some of them. And I remember, I think it was Bill White. He would give me keys. He had a Corvette. And I used to run up, take the elevator up and retrieve something from his car. Players would give you different requests. I mean, I think I can remember going out and getting a a hot dog or two for a player before the game. If they were hungry, I'd run out to the snack bar because there was a snack bar right outside the visitor's clubhouse. So whatever they needed, that was our job, and we would take care of that. Another interesting point was when I was a bat boy, you know, I handled, of course, all the players' bats, and we had this big cart where we throw all these bats in after the game and roll it up to a storage room. And I can remember putting Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Willie Stargell, Clemente, all these greats, because they would have the number on the, the end of the bat on the handle. So I'd roll them up and put them in the storage room for the next game. And I'd reflect on that thinking, geez, if I had one of those bats yeah. now, like an Aaron or Mays or right. something, you know. Yeah, because those, those bats are now, many of them in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. And I used to handle them all and just roll them up the ramp and put them away. And never would think of taking one. But when they would break a bat, I do have a, a few broken bats, but nobody like Mays or, or Aaron or anything. Back then, I wish I had known. But talking in the early, mid-60s, and yeah. you didn't think of it so much. Now you sure do. Yeah. But, you know. So, Mike, you pitched in high school and in college. You know, not the world's greatest fastball, but you definitely had pinpoint control. And I think at some point, you're invited to try out to be a batting practice pitcher for the Dodgers. Talk to me about that tryout that day at Dodger Stadium, where you got a chance to go from bat boy to batting practice pitcher. Right. I started as a bat boy like at around 65. I went to Alhambra High School and I pitched at Pasadena City College, the same college that Jackie Robinson played, of course. And then I pitched at Cal State LA a little bit. And my whole strength was control. You know, I didn't throw the ball 90 plus miles an hour or anything, but I could pretty much put it where I wanted to. So while I was bat boy with the Dodgers, I heard, hey, they need batting practice pitcher. So they came and got me. They took me down to the Carol Berenger was the coach's name, took me down to the right field bullpen. And back then, you threw pretty much from the rubber. You know, they didn't show for 20 feet like they do now. So I was on the rubber pitching and had a good day. He liked me. He called Walter Alston over, who was the manager. He watched me. They hired me that day. They liked me. And I pitched there for 30 years. How many pitches would you throw on average before each game, do you think? We figured that out. Maybe in batting practice, you throw about 150. The way it works is uh, you only throw 15 minutes. My job was I threw to the starting outfielders and starting catcher. And we had a, a coach named Mark Cressy, who was the bullpen coach. He threw the starting infielders. So we each threw 15 minutes. Now, to some people, it doesn't sound like a real long time, but when you throw in rapid fire, you have a ball in your glove and a ball in your hand at all times. So these players want rapid fire pitches. They don't want to have to stand around. So probably 150 pitches 
a day. Plus, you're warming up. And how much would you get paid for that each day? You know, when I first started, I think we got like 20 bucks or 25 bucks. That was, you know, I started pitching in 70, 69. And when I left, I think I was making 75 bucks a game. Wow. I would have done it for free, but yeah. don't tell them that. <laughs> yeah. Mike, you used to sit in the uh, up in the top deck of Dodger Stadium as a kid, I'm sure, imagining oh. what it would be like one day to be down on the field. And then, you know, here you are. I'd get there when they opened the gates. A buddy and I w- would sit up in the top deck. Back then, they wouldn't let you go from deck to deck. Now you can you can do that. But I would sit on top deck, and we'd sneak down to the field. And when the game was over, we'd lean over and just touch the dirt pick up a handful of dirt. They'd have to kick us out of the stadium. And then we'd hang around outside waiting for the players to come out. So I dreamt about just touching or standing on the field. And who would have guessed that later on, I would be on that field pitching for 30 years to the greatest hitters in the world, traveling on the road and getting a pitch in playoffs and World Series dream come true. And speaking of road trips, you also, in addition to throwing BP, would catch sometimes pitchers in the bullpen. I'm curious, whose fastball hurt the most to catch? We had a relief pitcher named Pete Rickert, and I'm not a catcher. I'm a pitcher. They asked me to catch in the bullpen, so of course I did it. It wasn't my favorite thing to do, but hey, being on the field with the Dodgers, hey, you do anything they ask, but I remember some bullpen, like I remember Atlanta, it was way out in the outfield and it was dark. It was hard to see. And I remember catching Pete Rickard out there and couldn't really see him very well or see the ball very well. But probably the funniest story, Candlestick Park. Tonight's game comes to you from Candlestick Park in San Francisco, where the Dodgers face the Giants. Windy, cold, blustery. And I wore contact lenses then. So when I was pitching, you know, your eyes would start watering and all that. But it was really cold up there. So then they had me catching the bullpen. And the bullpens there were down the third base line, ours was. And the catcher's back was to home plate. There was no fence. It was just wide open. So we had a pitcher named Charlie Huff, a knuckleballer. And Jaeger sitting on the bench next to me. So they get Charlie Huff up and they tell me to catch him. So I'm back behind the plate and it's windy and first pitch he throws, I don't even touch it. It just rolls back toward home plate. Umpire calls timeout and I'm thinking, oh man, you know, this isn't going to be good. Of course, I have my name on the back of my uniform. So as I'm trotting to get the ball, I hear a couple fans heckling me. And so I go back, throws me the next one. Don't touch it again. Rolls toward home plate. And I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be bad. So I start trotting, and all of a sudden, hey, McDermott, you are terrible. Where'd they get you? Where'd you come from? And all this. They're just, the fans are just all over me. <laughs> so I look over at Jaeger. I look at him, and I give him the look, and he looks at me, so I flip him the glove. He started catching Charlie, and he didn't get past him, but he knocked a couple down. But, <laughs> I mean, that knuckleball is unbelievable. He had a great one. The knuckleball is hard enough to catch, you know, without the wind, but you add the exactly. wind to Candlestick Park, and it made it impossible. Yeah, and, and the way the bullpen was, you had nothing behind you. So uh, if it gets past you, they got to stop the game, and <laughs> I really heard about it. And I looked at Jaeger, and I said, you know, come on, man. And he didn't catch them all, but they didn't get past him, but he knocked them down at least. Yeah, what a great story. You also had the privilege of pitching and catching in old-timers games. Do you remember Warren Spahn's high kick on the pitcher's mound? 
the way Willie Mays would make that famous basket catch in center field for the Giants, and the way Frank Robinson would uncoil like a cobra at home plate. Those are just some of the images we remember from the great baseball players of the past, and today we will relive many of them as we welcome you to the fifth annual National Old Timers Baseball Classic. Who are some of the all-time greats that you pitched to and caught for that stand out to you? Well, believe it or not, like Bob Gibson, and even though he was a pitcher, and Frank Robinson and those guys would get in there and take a few hacks. But Don Zimmer was a coach. They had an all-star team that was either, I think it was going to Japan or somewhere, and they came to work out at Dodger Stadium, and they called me to ask me to come down and pitch to them, which was a big thrill for me. So I got to pitch to all those guys. And kind of a, a funny story is Zimmer came up to me, and he goes, uh, are the Dodgers paying you for this, or what's the deal? And I said, hey, I have no idea what's going on. So <laughs> out of his back uniform pocket, he pulls out a $100 bill and hands it to me. He goes, here, take this. You know. Wow. So, yeah, Zimmer was quite the character. But yeah, he was. He was either the manager or coaching on that team. But, you know, meeting Gibson and, and Aaron, I'm fortunate to have pictures of most all these guys. Um, Mays, I met him, and being able to communicate, talk with these guys a little bit. It's a big thrill, you know. Yeah, and I bet one of the biggest thrills came in 1972. Jackie Robinson was having his number retired at Dodger Stadium, and you find yourself in the dugout with some of the game's biggest legends. Ladies and gentlemen, I can only say this is one of the truly great moments of my life, and to be here with Roy and Sandy and to see the way that the O'Malley's have reacted is awfully important to me, and I want to thank them for all the many, many opportunities that have afforded me. What they did uh, in 72, the Dodgers retired Jackie's number, Roy Campanelle, and Colfax on the same day. And I remember I was in the dugout, and I was standing uh, at the far end uh, near the steps that go up near home plate. And um, I had mentioned to Jackie that I had played at Pasadena City College, same place he did. And we had a little little communication there. And then I had, I had a baseball, and I had him sign the ball. And didn't get a picture, unfortunately. Back then, you know, you didn't have cell phones right. and all that. So if there wasn't a photographer around, you're kind of out of luck. But what an honor to see him and Campanella, the great Brooklyn catcher, and, of course, Koufax, who's kind of my idol, you know. Yeah, that was a great day, and I was proud to have been there. In addition to throwing BP at Dodger Stadium for many years, Mike, you would uh, join the team on road trips as we talk about. So let's talk about a few of those old lost ballparks that you pitched batting practice in, starting with Jerry Park in Montreal home of the Expos from 1969 to 1976. Well, the Canadian anthem following the national anthem, and now the Montreal Expos take the field. What do you remember about Jerry Park, that little ballpark in Montreal? I remember it was early in the year, running in the outfield and hearing this crunch, 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 and it was little ice crystals, so it was still very cold. They had jet type of heaters in our dugouts, and I remember putting up my baseball cleat toward because my feet were freezing and almost melted the shoe. I could smell it. So I pulled it down real quick. I didn't realize how hot the darn thing was, <laughs> but it almost melted my shoes. You know, the ballpark, I think, was only one level. So it was kind of like a minor league ballpark. And I love Montreal. I think we stayed at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. Beautiful city. 
I loved every second of it. It was great being Montreal, being Canada. Let's talk about uh, Shea Stadium, in particular, the Shea Stadium Clubhouse. You, you definitely have some memories of that, don't you? Well, it was kind of down. It was like in a, in a basement dungeon. It was dark and it was small. And I was a little bit surprised how kind of dingy it was compared to a few of the newer ballparks I had gone to. I just remember it being dark and small and it seemed like it was down in a basement. And then, of course, the Dodgers would travel to Wrigley Field. Thank you, Jerry. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant good morning to you, wherever you may be. We are where it's at, Wrigley Field, Chicago, which without a doubt has become the most vital breathing ballpark in the National League. It seems it erupts with feeling, and all throughout the warm-ups today, the left field bleachers and the right field bleachers get into quite a sing-song. The right field bleachers all jump in unison and holler, kill. And the left field bleachers answer, dodges. And it's all in good spirit, and it's a great place to be. And at Wrigley Field, there was a unique way to get to the clubhouse. You had to cross, at least back then, you had to cross a bridge, right? Yeah, I remember going across a bridge from the dugout, and it was like a, a wire fence or chain link fence on the sides of the bridge. And you cross, and you could look down, and you would see the fans walking down the aisles and down the where the snack bars are. And and I thought that was kind of a odd thing. But I was thrilled to pitch at Wrigley. It's such an iconic stadium. I remember going out in the outfield there and checking out. I don't think the ivy was completely green then. I remember it was still kind of hadn't grown all back in. But being in Wrigley and thinking about Ernie Banks and Billy Williams and all the Ferguson Jenkins and all the greats that play there when I was there, Ernie was still playing and loved it there, too. But it was a, certainly a different clubhouse. And Yosh Kawano was the clubhouse manager on the visitor side, our side. And then our home clubhouse manager was Nobi Kawano, his brother. So the, the two brothers had two different clubhouses to manage. So, Mike, in 1977, the Dodgers are playing the Yankees in the World Series. ABC Sports presents... The 1977 World Series. From Yankee Stadium in New York, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Yankees. And you are on the mound at historic Yankee Stadium for the first time pitching BP. Talk to me about that experience. Biggest thrill I think I had in the entire time I was with the Dodgers. I remember walking out on the mound, and thank goodness there was a Dodger photographer there, and he took a picture of me on the mound. You could see the Yankee logo in the background and all. Like I said, we used to pitch from almost the rubber, maybe a foot in front of the rubber. And I remember standing on the mound and doing a 360 and just shaking my head and saying, isn't this something, you know? Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford all stood here. I mean, I was just in awe of the whole thing. And the first guy I pitched to was Reggie Smith, and I was a bit nervous. But as soon as you throw your first strike and they hit the ball hard, it kind of goes away. But I have to say Yankee Stadium was my biggest thrill. And I have the uniform top I wore that day, which is gray, obviously. I had my drawer for 25 years. And about six, seven years ago, I said, look, I got to do something with this. So I had the uniform framed. Steinbrenner had given us all the players a pin, a World Series pin, which I had. 
I got a ticket from that original day, actual real ticket from that first game, 1977, October something. And I had the picture. So I have my uniform, picture, the pin, and the ticket all in a big frame in my baseball room from that experience. In 1993, in the dressing room, you were allowed to change at Dodger Stadium. You had your own special dressing room. Many days, though, pitchers, I think Jim Gott and maybe Kevin Gross would be in there with you. Do you remember what those two guys were doing? Absolutely. The batting practice pitchers, we had our dressing room, which was the old Angels. The Angels used to play at Dodger Stadium, too, until their stadium was finished. So it was like a separate clubhouse, and that's where we would dress. And Jim Gott and Kevin Gross would come in and do the, the I think it was called hip keto or something like that. It was like a martial arts. Karate. Martial arts, yeah. Yeah. And very serious about it. And they would come in and do their martial arts workouts. I'll tell you what, if there was ever a fight of any kind on the field, those are the two guys I want to have on my left and on my right. <laughs> they're, they're both great guys. But Jim Gott, who I still talk to today and see occasionally today, nicest guy in the world, but strong as a as an ox and somebody you'd never want to mess with, but he's as good a guy as you could get. But they would come back there every game, every day before the game and do their exercise or workout for the martial arts. And interesting to see. Yeah, I'm sure. A couple strong, tough guys and good pitchers. And I used to pitch to Jim Gott, too, and he could hit the ball as far as anybody unbelievably strong. Your nickname around the ball club was Mac, but not everyone called you Mac. Right. You know, being McDermott, everybody called me Mac. Back in the day, Vin Scully could still walk on the concourse. He was with Jerry Doggett, and let's say Vinny had an inning off or something. He would walk the concourse, or I'd see him before the game. And, you know, we knew each other. He always said, hey, Mick, how you doing? And nobody ever called me Mick. They, everybody called me Mac. But I am certainly not going to correct Benny. I just, <laughs> they, just so good to see him, you know? Yeah. And fast forward many years later, I was uh, honored to receive a 30-year organizational pin from Peter O'Malley. It was up in the stadium club. And toward the end of the ceremony, it was just like four pins left. One was mine. We had a traveling secretary named Billy DeLore. Oh, yeah. Billy Billy going all the way back to uh, Ebbets Field. Yeah. yeah. Billy DeLore. He was getting a pin for all the years. And then, of course, Vinny, I think Lasorda was getting one, too. So I knew I was coming up. I got my pin, my 30-year, and, and Peter O'Malley handed it to me. And Deano, the president, was there. So I went up to Vinny after because when they introduced me, they go, uh, Mike Mac McDermott. So when it was over, I went up to Vinny and shook his hand. I said, Vinny, it's it's such an honor to get a, something when you're getting it, too. And he goes, well, I'm proud of you, Mac. And that's the first time he ever called me Mac. <laughs> and it kind of solidified everything, thinking, hey, Vinny called me Mac. I mean, he was such an icon and such a good guy and a good friend. And so he called me Mac, and it kind of made my day and my year. What a career. What an opportunity. Yeah. And uh, you, you certainly made the most of it. Mike McDermott, Mac, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and reliving these uh, these old memories. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And I, I really enjoyed it. 
After I talked with Mac, I asked him if he had some photos that he could share of his time with the Dodgers. And uh, so he emailed those to me a few days ago, and he has some amazing photographs. There are photos with him and Bob Feller. Ben Scully, Billy Williams, Johnny Bench, Willie Mays, Roy Campanella, Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, Bob Gibson, and Lou Brock. What a job. What a life. How many guys can say that they pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers for 30 years? Um, I think just one. Mike McDermott. The Lost Ballparks podcast is produced by Xavier Guerra, Mandy Savlakis, Mike Dunn, Ryan Beard, John Carter, Alex Kemp, Briggs Buckingham, Kyle Schmidt, and Mike Lipensky. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast.